I'm sorry, but tonight's uh, sermon is in solemn contrast to this morning's, because this morning's we were hearing about the assurances that we find in the Gospel, that we can know that we are saved. Within the Gospel, and yet this evening's passage is about what happens to those outside the Gospel. You see, if we believe that Scripture is true, we hold true to the promises, then we must also be consistent, we must also remember and observe the warning in Scripture as well. The Word of God is a church word, and whilst it brings all God's people a message of hope, it also brings those that are not his own, for those that are living I want to suggest that this passage actually begins, you see where this is your big number four in, in your Bibles tonight. So that little one line is the beginning, that's verse one. Of course, the way we divide the Bible up into chapters and verses is my maid, um, but I'm taking that one line there as my start. It's a short sentence and it seemingly marks time, rounding up the first three chapters. It just says this, and Samuel's word came to all Israel. And this single sentence sets the context. It indicates something to us about what's going to follow. If you read just prior to that, um, chapter 3, verse 19, this is what it says. It says that the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Bathsheba, that's from north to south, recognised that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh and revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And here we go. Although God 
is coming and God's word is coming through Samuel, Israel is failing to listen. Failed to listen to God's word for some time. In fact, we're not going to see Samuel until chapter 7. So what's God up to in redemption history? Why this break in the narrative? Why this uh, move away from the central person of this book? Well, Samuel has been preaching the word. He is still preaching the word. But it's clear that God's people, Israel, God's church then, has not been listening. And even states in the Bible that at this time, the Israelites, that if whatever was pleasing in their own eyes, certainly not God, I mean, they couldn't care less at that time what was coming out of the sun in his mouth. But our God is a son. And that's why we call him sovereign. And he will accomplish his son. But before his plan is accomplished, so he can bring it about, he needs to shake this nation up. He needs to prune the dead wood, the old guard, the leaders, the priests, and the elders, all of whom have failed to hear God's word and have led Israel into this great calamity. In particular, God needed to deal with Eli and this terrible thing of me and Phineas. I want us to think a little bit tonight about what is true religion. What's true religion? Religion worthy of God. So, the example we have in Israel tonight is a very unworthy religion. It's a religion of superstition. And there's a fine line between authentic faith and superstition. And we can all sometimes be quite successful at it, falling over that line. So Israelite's religion was not about a relationship with God. Rather it was about a box. A piece of decoration. It was superstitious. And when we fail to take God's word seriously, we fall from authentic faith into superstition ourselves. So the uh, story unfolds, we have a crisis, and it's a crisis that's brought about by God. It's precipitated by God. But it centres around this box of the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Promise between God and his people. The Ark was about size of a bedding box. And it was held in the temple at Shiloh, behind a thick curtain, and only the priests were allowed to go near it or see it as such as. It was covered in gold, it contained numerous objects, and most importantly, it contained the law of Moses. The gospel of Moses, the word of God, the Israelites, was contained within it. And the lid of this box was very ornate as well. It was covered in gold, and it had two angelic beings on it called cherubim, and their wings sort of came out over this box. The lid of the box was so, so ornate, that it was given a special name. It was called the mercy seat. Because over it, the blood of the offerings given on behalf of Israel's sins would be sprinkled. And from that, mercy would flow. For the Israelites, the ark 
represented the throne of God on earth. It represented God's word on earth. And through that blood offering, it represented God's forgiveness coming from the mercy seat. To sum up the ark was God's ruling, God's speaking, and God's forgiving presence to the Israelites. And it had an illustrious task. God on numerous times in Israel's history had used it to demonstrate his power and his glory and his will. Do you remember the crossing of the Jordan? All Israel lined up and the ark went through the Jordan and God miraculously held back the currents so the Israelites could go so the Israelites could go through it unhindered. Over the waters, Joshua was told by God to take the ark and march it around Jericho seven times. And on the seventh time, with a loud shout, the walls came tumbling down. And the elders in tonight's passage remember these stories. They remember this good old-fashioned time religion. And they wanted some of that might and some of that power. They said, get the furniture. If we get the furniture, surely God will come. God will be on our side. We'll force him to act. We'll put his name to it. We have God has worked through the ark many times in Israel's history. But Israel failed to see that it was God that mattered, not the furniture. And we have a classic example here of how his people, his church, then, fell into superstition. So we have a war, and the exact details of how it starts were unknown. But who's in the war and where it is, we do know. It's with the Philistines, Israel's arch rivals. Now, like the Israelites, they were, the Philistines, they were migrant people. They'd migrated into that land also. But unlike the Israelites, the Philistines, they lived in cities. They were a confederation of city-states. And in the land in between these cities is where the Israelites lived, because they have a, um, an agricultural economy. And the Philistines, they're camped outside, 22 miles outside Shiloh, which is a centre of activity for the Israelites. It's like their capital city or capital centre. It's where the temple is. So Israel, in many senses, is about to be overrun. And so they send an army out. But it doesn't go well. And 4,000 troops die. And the leaders of the, of the Israelites are rattled. They don't understand how this could have happened. And yet, they do actually recognise to some degree that this was brought about by God. How could God have brought this upon us? But instead of doing some soul searching, instead of returning to God's word, instead of listening to Samuel, or even repenting for their ways, they proposed their own solution. A solution proposed by man, and not God. They decide they need some of that raw power. They want to access some of that power, a power that's beyond themselves. They wanted to create their own program for victory. 
someone gets a bright idea, let's go and get the box. Let's go and get the symbolic presence of God. And surely we will win. So they go out to Shiloh and they get the ark. In verse 5, shows just how deluded the Israelites have become. There's a big shout that goes out. There's a sudden morale boost. This football stadium stuff, a great roar, so loud that the Philistines hear it in their camp. And the Philistines, they become afraid. Because they know and recognise, in part, Israel's history. And they know how Israel's God, God's, they didn't really know the Israelites that well enough, did they? But they know that the Israelites have got some pretty powerful backers. And so the Philistines challenge all their soldiers to fight for their lives. Every last man of you fight like you've never fought before. Well, considering how Israel got to this decision to bring the ark into battle, it's no surprise that the battle didn't go well. And now 30,000 men are slaughtered on the battlefield. And worse, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Promise between God and his people has been captured. The Philistines smashed their enemy. It is a tragic chapter. In many ways, it's like Israel, September, September the 11th. Nothing like this had happened to uh, this nation before. And yet Israel should have known not to lay claims to the promises of God if they were choosing to ignore his demands also. They should have known not to lay claims to the promises of God if they were choosing to ignore his demands also. I've got three observations tonight. So, the first one is this. God will suffer defeat rather than let us think that we own him. God will suffer defeat rather than let us think that we own him. Let me explain. Within each and every one of us, I'm sure you, you know this, there's a void. There's a God-shaped gap inside every one of us. And people from time immemorial have used isms to fill that hole. Whether it's humanism, Hinduism, or yoga, or horoscopes, or something, we need to fill this spiritual void in our lives. We do it consciously or we do it unconsciously. But it is human nature. In this country, many nominal Christians who want a bit of luck, so they'll go to Mass or they'll go to communion. They'll say there are prayers. It's, it's the same example of going to get the ark. They keep hold of a lucky charm. Some of them start going to church for a while. Okay? It's the same thing. Okay? Politicians use religion. They're classic assets, so they can get what they want. People's inherent nature is to use religion, to get something that they want, because they recognise the void, and they recognise what they need to fill that void, and the power that it has. You see, the sad thing is that on that day of judgment, many people will go before the throne of God. And God will say, I never knew you. 
And some people reply, they'll say, but I read my Bible and I went to church and I did this and I did that. I gave money when it was appropriate. But God's judgment will be, I never knew you. And that is the worst thing anyone can ever hear. You see, God will rather suffer defeat for a while rather than think that we can own him or manipulate him that we can use him like a lucky charm or a rabbit's foot. Our human nature is that we crave power, especially spiritual power. We get ourselves into trouble and we want spiritual power to overcome it. We start reading our Bible more, we do this and we do that. Whatever it is that we do, we do it so we can command and we can control the situation, so we can control a solution our problems. Now I'm not suggesting any of you do this, but many people do just this. It's what religion is all about to them. They say, let's bring God into this. Let's, he'll sort it out. Let's get the box. And we try to manipulate God to do what we want. And that's exactly what Israel did. You see, the power of God is not a tap that we can turn on or off, he does not move to the beat of our drum. Here's why I said, let's get the box. And he led it out to Shiloh by two of the most despicable priests imaginable. Two of the greatest charlatans you will ever imagine, often here, led the Ark of the Covenant out of the temple and into battle. Surely they will win. Well, true And this is what Israel failed to grasp. This is what God's church then failed to grasp. In the film book of Psalm 40, you know it says, sacrifices and offerings I do not desire. And it goes on to explain that unless your heart is right, unless your heart is right, all that you do is just keep sitting. Unless you have a relationship with Jesus, it's a personal word and statement, and whatever you do, it's just a good God is the Bible is big enough. It doesn't mind losing for a while if you can teach people who we really are. We hate losing, but our God, ego, is not that for our child. Second observation. That God will fulfill his word even if it looks like an unmitigated disaster. Even if it looks like an absolute disaster, God will fulfill his word. The kind of perspective that are evolved tonight, you've got the Israelite army, you've got the soaps back at Shiloh, you've got the leaders and the elders of the people, you've got the priests. For all of them people, this was without a question an unmitigated disaster. By the time this day is over, 34,000 soldiers will be slaughtered on the battlefield. That's tremendous numbers. And yet, God is acting to fulfill his word. God has forecast judgment earlier. Remind yourselves of that unmade prophet that came to Eli in chapter 2, verse 7. 
became pronounced judgment on the house of Eli for what his sons were doing. They bullied sincere temple worshippers. They took advantage of the women in the court and they manipulated the first cuts of the temple system for themselves. Now what do you think God cares about the most? Do you think he cares about a box, a piece of furniture? Or do you think he cares about the fact that his people aren't paying him the honour he deserves? Often and Phineas must go. God will not be mocked. And that age old saying is true here. If you sow destruction, you will reap destruction. And likewise, if you say no to grace, what do you think will you reap? It's judgment. God's word has been spoken. Start choices, that's what we face. God's word says that for those who come and accept Jesus Christ as a Lord and Saviour, untold graces and mercies and blessings follow. But for those who reject it, and woe for anyone who finds themselves on the wrong side of that wedge. There are promises in Christ and blessings, but there are also warnings. So let me ask you tonight, where are you? Are you enjoying the relationship with Christ? Or are you engaging in the same God? in the situation. Now the difference in quality is like the difference in experience between a black and white TV set and the modern new flat screen Nikon digital stereo TV set like that. Okay. The difference the difference in quality, okay, there's no comparison between authentic faith and superstition. It doesn't matter what thoughts you've got. It doesn't matter how many books you've read. It doesn't primarily matter how many times you've actually been to church. It's where the heart lies that matters. A superstitious faith will always fail. It just does not fit the void. It doesn't even touch the sap. Well, Eli's dead after many years of services in his late 90s. Uh, he's blind and weak. After hearing about the battle lost, after hearing about his sons dying, finally his news the ark being captured and it's at this point that he falls over backwards and snaps his neck. Now we criticise weak Eli for failing to manage his household. We criticised him, but there was some godliness in this man. Do you remember what he said to young Samuel? When Samuel was growing up, he said, Samuel, don't hold anything back. Whatever it is, whatever God has given to you, don't hold it back. Let it be. Don't hold it back. Now, they're wonderful words of encouragement and instruction for young prophets. And I want to lay claim to them tonight that whatever God gives us, whether it's a skill or a talent or a word or a vision, whatever it is, don't hold it back. 
Third observation, Phineas's wife. Now, Phineas's wife shows more about her theology than her husband did in the whole of her ministry, in the whole of his ministry. In Phineas's wife's dying breaths, you learn more about her theology than you ever have in the whole of Phineas's ministry. She's pregnant, and on the news of the ark being lost, it puts her into labour. Okay, the shock of it. And during the birth, her life begins to slip away. And as the child is born, possibly her final breath, her last wishes, is that the child should be called Ichabod. Now, Ichabod is one of those words, isn't it? You can imagine that you could say it with some venom. Ichabod. And do you know what it means? It means the glory has departed. It means the glory has departed. Now that expression, the glory, is a very common one in the Old Testament and often when we read it, it's synonymous with God. God is the glory. And what Phineas' wife recognises is that God has departed out of Shiloh and for a time he's no longer going to be there with them. Now, 500 years later, another prophet, using very similar language, describes something about another tragedy that the Israelites face. This is when the Israelites were captured and taken into exile in Babylon. Ezekiel has a vision. He sees the temple, and he says that he sees the glory leave like a train. Leave the temple. Leave Jerusalem. The glory of God leaves Judea. It leaves Israel. It leaves. The glory departs. It's a fascinating vision. You should read it. And you might just say, well, that's Old Testament stuff. But if we flick forward, and please do on this one, flick forward to John chapter 1, verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14. Because what we read here is that Jesus is now revealed as the glory. Let me read it. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the glory. In Revelation, at the start of Revelation, what we have is a series of communication between Jesus and the church in Asia Minor. Okay? And what we see in, in the initial chapter of Revelation, and we'll be studying it in the morning, so I can't wait, is we see Christ, who is the glory, okay, one of the churches, that if they don't abide in his word and in his will, that he will remove the lampstand not serious stuff. It will be as if these churches will be renamed Nicobar. The glory of Nicobar. You see, it's Jesus that makes the difference. And the sad thing is, up and down this country, I'm sure you'll recognise this, that there are buildings and places 
the gospel is one faithful God. But now, another gospel is preached. The congregations are led no longer by the word, where some of them have become empty sounds, places to practice superstitious religion, places to dabble with non biblical ideas and ways. And it's as if on many of these churches that Ichabod has been written over the doors. The glory has departed. Now that's a real challenge. And it's a warning to us all that we are God. We think that this could happen. We don't see this great church that we love so well, that Ichabod could ever be written on our walls, so I hope not. So this is my plea, it's my burden, and I know it's the vicar's burden and it's the PCC's burden. It should be the whole congregation's burden, okay, that we do everything possible Whatever God has given us, we hold nothing back, but we do everything possible to make sure that Ichabod is never said of us. That the Gospel is always preached here, and that Christ is always exalted in our services and in our lives. Amen. Shall we pray? Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the refuge that we find in it. But I do pray, Lord, that we read it with clear eyes and clear hearts and we learn to know that if you make claims to your promises, you must reserve your warnings also. Lord, we pray that we, church as people, will never fall into superstitious religion, that we will always continue to test our hearts, that we'll keep you in our lives, they spent our lives around you and our objects and into the furniture of things, anything but you.